Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back with you again. Uh, it's been several months since I've been able to be with you in a morning assembly, and it's great to see this great crowd of folk here gathered uh, this morning. I know you're getting some good news from uh, the search team. Uh, I think Chad Warner, the chair, spoke last week about the progress in the search. Uh, the search team has been doing a yeoman's work. They've been working very hard. They've been listening to dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons and talking to lots of different people in lots of different places. And uh, they're coming down to uh, two candidates. And those two candidates will be making a visits here in the next few, three, two, three weeks to visit with staff and elders and the search team and to do, move into those final, final phases. Uh, Chad may have mentioned that those visits will be quiet or private visits. One of the challenges of finding a good minister is that good ministers are gainfully ministering someplace, right? And... Uh, the, the challenge, if you bring a minister in to speak here, within 30 nanoseconds, everybody all over the country will know that they're here. And uh, the last thing we need to do is to damage some minister's ministerial life and career by uh, having them uh, speak publicly. And so uh, the process that we use out of the Cyber Institute uh, seem, tries to, to avoid that so that ministers will in fact want to participate in search processes and so uh, these two candidates that are coming in to meet with your elders and staff are uh, I know both of them they're great candidates and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the Lord will work over these next few weeks as uh, this as the congregation moves closer and closer to finding that person that God has appointed to be here at Kerrville well uh, Back in the 1960s, when I was just a wee little second grader, um, my family often made trips up and down I-44 from central Oklahoma to southwest Missouri where we lived. And on I-44, if you've ever been, if you were traveling at all in the 60s and 70s, that will, for some of you, you may remember those days, there was a large great big huge hotel that sat alongside the freeway in downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, so here I am, six or seven years old, sitting in the back seat of the car, and I see the sign for the name of this hotel. It's in letters that are 30 foot tall or more. And it, it's, uh, it was an opportunity for me to practice what Mrs. Scobie, my second grade teacher, had been teaching me, phonetics. Phonetics. I had learned well from the chief uh, leader of all good pronunciation, Mrs. Scobie. She was the fount of all knowledge, the bearer of all wisdom, the bringer of light in being able to pronounce things. I was a card-carrying member of the American Association of Pronunciation Experts. And so with all of the gravity that a seven-year-old can muster, and seven-year-olds can muster up some pretty serious gravity at times, I pronounced to my family in the car the name of this ho hotel. It was the Came Lot Inn. <laughs> and nothing could dissuade me of the reality of my pronouncement. That's the way it is. Well, yes. 
Our text today has a story about a man who was clear and convinced and convicted of what was right and what was wrong. His name was Saul. And Saul in Acts chapter 9 was a man who was bent on a purposeful mission. He had been trained well by the fount of all knowledge. He knew what was right and what was wrong. And there was something very, very wrong in Jerusalem. And it had spread to other places where Jews lived. And Saul was determined to stamp it out. He breathes, the text says in Acts chapter 9, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He obtained papers to go to Damascus and take care of this problem. He was going to arrest and sentence to death all of those who were believers in this crazy new thing called the way, or we would know it as the Christian faith. He was determined, he was clear, and he was convicted, and he was dangerous, breathing threats and murders. And away he goes northward out of Jerusalem, up the Damascus Road, about 135 miles to another city called Damascus. Well, here we are. Now, I got to go back to little younger me. In the third grade, when I was about eight years old, my family had the practice on Saturday night my mom would make homemade pizza. Chef Boyardee, anybody? You remember this? She'd make a couple of those pizzas. We'd pop popcorn, and I think it was NBC had Saturday night at the movies. I can't remember. Was it NBC, Saturday night at the movies? Well, there we were in the living room, pizza spread out, popcorn everywhere, and on the TV screen came Richard Harris and Vanessa Redgrave, and all of a sudden, I began to hear Camelot. Da -da, da -da, da -da. And suddenly, that third grade self of me had a conversion experience. <laughs> right? No longer is it Camelot, it's Camelot. And in fact, that experience was so profound, it shaped my whole youth. I began to read Thomas Mallory's The Mort D'Arthur, T.H. White, The Once and Future King, Mary Student's Body of Work, all about King Arthur. I became a pursuer of the round table and all that was noble and chivalrous, all because of Richard Harris showing up one Saturday night over pizza. It's that kind of experience that Paul had, Saul has on this road. As he approaches Damascus, light from heaven bolts down and knocks him to the ground. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you hurt me? Now, several things here. When you hear your name twice in the Bible, it's big news. It's really big news. It's kind of like when mamas call out the full name of their child, right? Oh, pay attention because something bad may have, is about to happen. Abraham hears it in, Abra in uh, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, Abraham. Jacob gets it in Genesis chapter 46. Moses gets it in Exodus 3. Moses, Moses. 
And Saul hears it as well. Why are you hurting me? This is a jarring uh, notion for Saul. He has been so bent on doing the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. And now suddenly he's being challenged. Why are you hurting me? And, And we hear Saul's response. Lord, Lord, who are you? Now, this is not Saul saying, Lord, I know who you are, Jesus. This is a biblically informed Jew who knows he's in trouble. Because when, when people who know the Bible know when God speaks, uh, you better pay attention. And so he is all ears. He knows that he's, in, he's on, he's on uh, sacred ground in this moment. Who are you? And the reply is, I am Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm, you're, I'm the one you're hurting. And this has got to blow Saul's mind because he's not hurting Jesus. He's hurting, he's after hurting some disciples. He's putting the quash on people who believe in Jesus. And in this moment, Saul is having to deal with a rather remarkable notion that somehow or another, his actions are connected deeply to this Jesus guy. And that's got to shatter him. It's got to. He's blinded by the light. He finds himself absolutely blown away by all of this. And he's now having to be led into the city by others. He has been busted. He has found himself rock bottom. And even though his eyes are open, he can see nothing. His eyes are no longer of any use. He's vulnerable. He's dependent. He's an aid and dependent upon the mercy of others. And now this powerful person has become powerless Paul's real self has now been disclosed to him. He now sees himself as he really is. That's what happens when Jesus shows up. Another noted person in history who experienced this sort of thing that we often tell stories about, I want to remind us of it this morning. It's the fellow who wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. John Newton. John Newton began his life as a sailing master, a slaver. He was part of the slave trade, taking Africans to the New World in slave ships. And uh, it was not until God got a hold of him that a massive change took place in his life. And on his tombstone, this is a close-up of his tombstone in a courtyard uh, church uh, in London, England, And let me read the whole thing for you. You can't see quite all of it there. John Newton, clerk. He spent the last 30 or 40 years of his life in ministry. He names his reality. He names who he is. He says, once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel, which he has long labored Uh, which he had long labored to destroy. And uh, then it goes on to have a little biographical note that he ministered for 16 years in Olney and then 28 years in the church where he was buried. This this self-disclosure is the sort of thing that happens for for Saul. He, he, He comes to reckon with his wretchedness and the error of his path. Now this error, this wretchedness, is not 
a, a matter of somehow or another he was an awful person and now he's on his way to being a good person. The conversion stories of Acts are not about horrible people who become good people. They, uh, those kinds of stories are, we hear a lot and we kind of associate with Saul sometimes. You know, someone who's a boozer but then gets off of the bottle. A philanderer who chooses to be celibate. A bad person becomes a good person. Someone who doesn't believe in God and now comes to believe in God. Those kinds of stories often make the headlines... But Luke has no interest in them in the, in the book of Acts. Very little interest in that kind of stuff. The rags to riches sort of stories, those come a dime a dozen. That happens all the time. What Luke is interested in is when good people, righteous people, virtuous people, people who've got some things going in their lives, come to realize how little they have going on in their lives. Think about it for just a moment. In Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people come to faith, were all those people boozers? No, they were in Jerusalem on a religious pilgrimage, right? Think about Lydia, who's down by the river, who comes to faith. What was she doing out there? She was having a Bible study. Think about Peter, who has a conversion experience in the next chapter, in chapter 10. What was he doing? He was up on the rooftop praying to the Lord when he has this encounter with Jesus? Are you getting the point? The point is that conversion is not just for bad people. Conversion comes to church folk. And Saul was the church folk among church folk, wasn't he? This guy had been, to, had been trained. He had a PhD in religiosity. And he is the one who, in, when encountering Jesus, realizes how blind, how blind he is. This is conversion. This is what we're speaking about. Jesus showing up and speaking into people's lives and people coming to see the world in a brand new way, a way in which uh, calls upon them to live life courageously and in new paths. For example, the next story, or it's actually the story that's inside this story, there's another guy. His name is Ananias. Now, Ananias is a good guy. He's hanging out in his home in Damascus, verse 10 of chapter 9. And you know what he hears? He hears his name spoken, Ananias. And then Ananias does something that's so sweet. He says, here I am, Lord. It's meant to echo what little Samuel says to, to uh to God back in the old Bible in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. Remember that story of the little boy Samuel? Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Lord. Ananias responds faithfully in this moment to the voice, the voice of the Lord. And Ananias is told to do the same thing that Saul was told. Saul was told to get up and go into the city. And Ananias is told to get up and go find Saul. And he's got some words for Saul that Ananias is supposed to deliver. And then Ananias, bless his heart, I don't know whether it's because he's scared or whether he's just being plain, straight up honest with the Lord, says this, he says, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. Lord, I just kind of want to raise a, 
a point of order here <laughs> before you send me to this guy who's been killing people left and right ostensibly in your name. But the Lord does something here. The Lord gives to Ananias, he gives the future of Saul to Ananias. He, he makes it clear to Ananias what lies ahead for Saul. And it's uh, important for our story today because it reminds us of what it means to be called by God, to be converted by God, to come to faith in God. The Lord says to Ananias, you go and talk to Saul. He's an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, there's something pretty striking about that. Saul's conversion was not somehow or another he moved from uh, being bad to being good. It's not about uh, kind of assuring uh, myself over and against fire insurance for all of eternity and now I can kind of wait till, till heaven comes and I get to go into being glory by and by. That's not what's being unfolded here. What's being unfolded is that for Saul to come to faith in Jesus Christ is to give up oneself and start following Jesus. And it is actually a path that's described as suffering. Now, that's not the sort of thing that uh, plays all that well, uh, both then or now, does it? But I, I'm here as the gospel preacher, and I'm announcing something. I'm saying that the time has come and now is for us to hear the voice of Jesus as he invites us into life with him and know that the path that we walk is a path of obedience to his purpose and will. And it starts by relinquishing oneself. There's a an author by the name of Paul Hawkins who makes a comment about uh, a conversion that I want to share with you. I want to share with you because uh, <laughs> it was him that reminded me of the uh, literary author by the name of Flannery O'Connor who said this about, apostles, uh, about Saul. She said, yeah, the Lord had to knock him off a horse to get his attention uh, in order to bring him to faith. Um, but Hawkins makes a comment here about this business of conversion. It occurs when a person is forced by extraordinary circumstances to transcend the self-centered demands of the ego and to come to see another person as a full self. That's the, this phrase, this idea of transcending my self-centered ego, of letting go of myself in order that I might receive that which God has in store for me. Well, no matter what it is, whether it's seeing kings and Gentiles and suffering or whatever path it is that God has for each one of us, it is a path that means relinquishing oneself and then following after Jesus. And so my question today is, what is it going to take to get our attention? What's it going to take? What does it take? <laughs> Oh, Stephen Covey, the noted author some years ago, tells an old story. You may have heard it, but it's a story about a battleship that was at sea doing maneuvers in heavy weather. They've been doing various maneuvers with a fleet. They're out in stormy weather. And after the sun goes down, it's dark. The report, uh, the lookout on the bridge reports to the captain. It says, there's a light in the distance. It seems to be on our same course. And so the captain says, well, send a message. Say, alter course 20 degrees to avoid collision. Well, in a few moments, the message comes back and says, 
you alter your course 20 degrees to alter collision. Well, this makes the captain of this big battleship a little upset. What do you mean telling me what to do? And so the captain says, send another message. Send a message that says, alter course 20 degrees because I am a captain. Well, a few minutes later, the message comes back and says, alter course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class. Now the captain is really, his, his, uh, he's really yanked up and tight. And he says, send another message. Alter course 20 degrees. I am a battleship. And a message comes back a few moments later and says, alter course 20 degrees. I am a lighthouse. What is it going to take to get our attention? Because Jesus stands at the door of our lives, on the roads that we walk, and our houses where we pray, and he's inviting us and calling us to move beyond the sorts of questions that we so often occupy our mind. What benefits me? What enhances my life? What does this mean for me? How do I make my life better? How do I like make my life more meaningful? How do I meet my needs? And I know that we all wrestle with those kinds of questions, but Jesus is here in our midst today, and he's saying to us, let me in, please. I have a mission, a purpose, a reason for your life something for you to do, and I'm inviting you into it. It's not necessarily a free ride for Paul. It's not necessarily a free ride for us. But the life of ministry, a life of service, a life of following Jesus in obedience is a life that truly is a life of meaning and purpose. And so I'm asking, what will it take to get your attention? Are you prepared to relinquish your sovereign self for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I'm asking for you this morning to take a reality check and ask, how am I doing on this score? My mentor and the person who's, who, who's named the institute that I serve, um, Charlie Seibert, used to have a saying, he had a lot of sayings, but one of his saving, sayings was, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It runs through a lot of places in the world. His point was that all too often we live trying to deny reality. We, we want to ignore the obvious. We want to ignore it because we'd rather live in our own fantasy world of kind of putting ourselves first and seeing how that works in the world. Well, today I am asking for us to let go of that. I'm asking for us to remember our baptism I'm asking for us to remember that our baptism was not merely our being saved from sin. It was being saved to serve, to live out a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. And to ask, do our words, do our deeds echo with the gospel of Jesus? Or are we, like a second grade boy that I used to know so long ago, keep emphasizing the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable? Would you bow for prayer? Lord God, today, as we recount this great story from the book of Acts of Saul, who was so, so passionate 
so educated, so clear, so convicted, and so, so wrong-headed. We are all reminded today of the ways in which we put and assert our own self and that we, we push you out of the picture. And today we're asking that you would help each of us as we render our heart open to you to be men and women who relinquish ourselves in order that we might receive your life, your love, your call, and find meaning in our life because we are practicing obedience to your purposes in this world. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.